our Lord is the Lord God of the nations. And um, it doesn't matter if you didn't understand what was being prayed there. Your spirit just knows when the right time to say amen is. It's a, it's a blessing from God. And uh, it is wonderful. When brothers and sisters can meet together in the Lord and we get a chance to praise. Unfortunately, it seems that Masai hasn't come. But the Lord knows, and he has his ways and his purposes. This has been, for me, a wonderful week, I think, with, one, being able to go to the zoo, and two, <laughs> and two, we have seen, <laughs> yeah, I'm not staying, and we have seen the spirit move mightily this week, and uh, that was a wonderful time of praise and worship. Let it, let's continue in that, friends, and we will see God move in power and in might. I wonder if I might bring a word. I'm not going to say short word because, you know, that's just not me. But I'm going <laughs> to... I wonder if I might bring a word for you that's a wonderful promise from the Old Testament to the church. And I think it's something, maybe not that I was planning to bring tonight, certainly, but um, hopefully it will have an effect on you. And I'm going to set you a challenge now, see how well you're doing with your Bible, finding... If you've got a Bible with you, can you find the book of Zephaniah? There you go, there's a difficult one. Zephaniah. It's in the Old Testament and it's in the Minor Prophets. A while back I used to have this, I had an inner passion for the obscure books in the Bible. All of them, Philemon, Jude, the Johns, many of the Minor Prophets I found myself drawn to them and drawn to the messages that that are in them and sometimes you look at them and you think well I can't see why that's got any value to us Zephaniah 1 1 so right at the beginning if you found it yet I'll give you a clue it's after Habakkuk and it's before Haggai if that's of any help And if it's got a C in it, you're looking at Zechariah. <laughs> Zephaniah 1.1 says this, The word of Jehovah which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, I don't know what it is with me and names today, in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah. Yes. There's a list of names. It's an interesting list of names. Now, I don't know if you know who Zephaniah was. Zephaniah was royalty, or he was from royalty. He was a prophet in the time of Josiah. And this morning we talked about what happened in the 18th year, the 18th reign of Josiah, that there was a scriptural revival, a return to scripture. And from that... We see a spiritual revival growing. Friends, if we want to see the Lord move, it won't happen until we return to the word of God. Because the word of God is how we understand God. As it says in John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The word logos. The Bible is a divine description of the Savior. But whilst... Josiah was a child before he was king, whilst he was still, shall we say, others were looking after him. Zephaniah was a prophet to him. 
And so Josiah hadn't completed the reforms that we read of. The land was still living in the sin and in the, the way that it was that the churches themselves had turned away from the Bible, that the temple was full of the Asherahs and people worshipped at the high places and worshipped all the gods and put their eldest child through the fires of Molech and did all of the worst things. Zephaniah knew this king, Josiah, whilst he was still a babe, still a child, but didn't know the good things he was going to do. In chapter 1 and verse 1, give a very unusual lineage of Zephaniah. They go back to King Hezekiah. They don't go any further. They don't give you a long like they like to. It just gives you these four generations. And why? Because that is unusual, you know. It's unusual for the lineage only to go back. Lazarus, Zephaniah's name, because Zephaniah means Jehovah has hidden. Both his name and the reason that we only go back four generations can be explained by a very quick look into the background and history of this prophet. If we go to Hezekiah, his great-great-grandfather, it's highlighted for this purpose because Hezekiah was the last good king. He was a good king. He was after God's heart and he got rid of the high places. He did much for the worship of the Lord. It was the last time that anybody can remember anybody moving. And it was many, many generations ago. But he seems to have to go back to Hezekiah for anything good happening in the Israel at the time. And Hezekiah was told he would die. He knew the thief would come and he asked for 15 extra years. This is what it says in 2 Chronicles 32. Hezekiah did not give according to the good done to him. For his heart was lifted up and there was wrath on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. And Hezekiah was humbled for the pride of his heart. He and the people of Jerusalem so that the wrath of Jehovah did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had exceedingly much riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones, for spices and for shields, and for all kinds of pleasant jewels. Hezekiah had been a great king. He'd been from a generation that done great things for God, and when his time was up, he said, no, Lord, give me 15 more years, just 15 more years, and we'll get it right. We'll finish it off. And what did he do with those 15 years? Did he take those that he could and teach them the ways of God knowing? Friends, how many of us today, if we knew the very day that we were going to die, would make the very use of those next few days that we had left? whether it be 15 years on or whatever, if we were given the very day that the thief was to come and take our lives, we would prepare for that. We would prepare for the future. We would make sure our orders were in effect. In effect. But he didn't. Hezekiah mounted up for himself gold. He mounted up for himself jewels. He made himself wealthy. and Why? He knew he was going to die. You can't take it with you. And instead of a generation passing on, and making sure that the next were ready for what was coming. He just thought about himself and thought about themselves and didn't want to let go of power whatsoever. And because he did, well, in that 15 years, his son was born, Manasseh. And he was six years, he was 12 years old when he began to reign. This is what the Bible says about Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years and just 55 years of this evil king. 
But he did evil in the sight of Jehovah, like the abominations of the heathen whom Jehovah had cast out before the sons of Israel. He built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Baals, and made Asherus and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of Jehovah, of which Jehovah had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in two courts of the house of Jehovah. And he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valleys of the son of Hinnom. He also practiced the secret arts and used fortune telling, used witchcraft and dealt with mediums, with soothsayers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord in order to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, an idol, which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. It's not a small thing that Hezekiah did. A wonderful king who saw God move gave birth to this abomination. Now, it's not that he gave birth to a bad son. He said he made no effort to make sure he was a good one. And it wasn't just a bad time. 55 years, friends, of seeing the absolute reversal of everything that God did. Now, for Zephaniah, Hezekiah had been the last good king. After him, he'd seen two generations of kings who had done much to destroy him and to destroy the worship of the Lord. And most of that was hunting down those that actually spoke the truth, the prophets. And that's why Zephaniah's name was the Lord is hidden. Because he was number one marked on the target. Both royal and a prophet, he had to hide his entire life. Because of these terrible kings who defiled the worship of God, these things weren't passed on. And like Zechariah, we read, waiting for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. They grew up in a time where they knew that everything about the worship of God was just wrong. And they couldn't see it was ever going to change. They were waiting for something. And now we read this morning about what Josiah did. And we praise the Lord that we know what Josiah did. But Zephaniah wrote this book before he even knew what Josiah was going to do. For him, he couldn't see any hope. And I'm sure I don't have to ask you very much, friends, if you've ever been in that situation where you just couldn't see any hope whatsoever. You seem to be stuck in that rut. You seem to see the absolute decline of everything that you loved and everything that you'd heard about and all the good that had gone in the past. Where has it gone? All I see is a defilement of God. Where's it gone? And that was Zephaniah. Many of us feel like this. But instead... Zephaniah prophesied to the people about their idolatry. He didn't sit and hide. He told them the truth. He stood up for what was right. And by standing up for what was right, it got him persecuted, as many of us know. Zephaniah 1.4 says, I will also stretch out my hand on Judah and all the people of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. The name of the idol worshippers were the priests and those drawing back from Jehovah and who have not sought Jehovah nor asked him. So Zephaniah preached this message. Now the book of these prophecies can be split into two. Chapter 1, 2, to chapter 3, 8, which, don't worry, we're not going to read out now. 
It is the judgment of God. And it's split down like this. It's an introduction in Zephaniah 1, 1 to 6, announcing the judgment of the whole world. Friends, if you aren't aware, the Lord is going to judge the whole world. That is something that will happen. Then we read the description of this judgment from 7 to 18. Then we read an exhortation from Zephaniah for the people to seek God while there's still time. Friends, there is still time to seek God tonight if you don't know the Lord. Because the day of his judgment is not yet full. The fullness of the Gentiles has not come. He's not called in his time. There is still time to turn from the judgment. Then there's an announcement of the judgment on the heathen. Then it talks about the hopeless misery of Jerusalem. And then finally, in 8 to 20, it talks about the promise of salvation. Friends, Zephaniah's book is a universal message. It's not just to the people of Israel, but it was to everybody, and it's to us. It is to all the nations, because as I've said, the Lord is the Lord of all the nations. All the nations. It conforms to no Jewish poet, poetic pattern. And it highlights the coming doom by a power raised up by God against Israel and the surrounding nations. Friends, it's agreed by many that this is a prophecy of what was going to happen to Israel, which was Babylon was to come and the Israelites were to be carried off to Babylon. And that is what we know happened. Many would look at it. But yet when Zephaniah prophesied it, Babylon was a small vassal with no power whatsoever. The days of Nebuchadnezzar, the days of Babylon controlling most of the known world in the Middle East weren't even in sight. The idea that Babylon was coming is absolute craziness, but the Lord knows. We don't know, but the Lord knows. And who would have thought that Blackburn would be the way that it looks today when Fred Watson and Willie Hacking were here? Would they have imagined that the makeup of Blackburn, that the places that we live in, that the places are like they are now? Who would have known? But it's the second part of this last section I want to look at. The promise of salvation. And in particular, the promise of God to each one of us. So turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9. And we're going to read this out. And it says this. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language. That they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers. The daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds, in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in his mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall see disaster no more. 
In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hand be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame, gather those who were driven out, and I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at that time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise amongst the people of the earth. When I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. You know, many look at these verses that I've just read here and they say that this is the restoration of Israel that we read in Nehemiah and Ezra after the exile. However, when you really look at these verses, I have to challenge that view and say that this isn't, God is talking about something much greater than the restoration of Israel because when Israel was restored to Ezra and Nehemiah, it wasn't properly restored. They never really came back in any kind of power and they never really came back in any kind of force. Zephaniah 3.11 says that in, day, in that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. What we read here is highlighted the end of temple worship. The end of the worship. Jesus said in John 4.21 to the woman believe me the hour is coming when you shall neither worship the father in this mountain nor yet at jerusalem the temple worship was ended then and we know that the temple worship ended in AD 70 because the temple was destroyed so the jews can no longer worship there jesus told them that the temple worship would gone so we read there that this prophecy is after the restoration not before it is after when the, that was destroyed. Verse 10 highlights the idea of the Gentile nations. It says, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. We don't have here a discussion about Israel coming back to its land. What we have here is a prophetic vision of something. The church age. Because the temple worship ended when we became the temples of God. And the Gentiles were called once again to worship in his kingdom. Praise the Lord. And what we read is from verse 19 to 13, we see the time of Christ. Verses 18 to 20, being that from Romans eleven twenty-five, where it says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, lest you should be wise within yourselves that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the nations has come in. And so all of Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. What we have here is a prophetic vision of the end times, of the church age. And we read of the times of Jesus, and at the end we read the times when the Lord turns to Israel. But in between there, 14 to 17, where I want to focus tonight, we see the church age, that age that we live in. A promise. The prophetic visions of old. Friends, before Christ, the church was envisaged. 
Before Christ came in the New Testament, it was envisaged that the church would be there. We read it here, a promise and a prophecy of ourselves. A promise through prophetic vision of what we as a church should be. And let's look at that. What should the church be like? This is how Zephaniah saw it. This is the vision that God gave him and he said this is what the church should be like. In verse 14 we read, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Friends, this church age is an age of worship. We are a people who are to continually praise the Lord as we've done tonight and had a most wonderful time. And we must not be afraid, friends, whether you worship the Lord within and you are more stale or whether you worship the Lord without and you get excited and you dance. We, this is an age of worship. The church age is an age of worship and it always has been. And we should always do that. We should always openly worship the Lord. Daniel's clock, and we'll talk about this through our in the Bible, Starts at Zechariah 9.9 where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and victorious, meek, riding on an ass, even on a colt, the son of an ass. This was fulfilled in the triumphal entry when the clock of Daniel stopped and the church age began. Jesus said in Luke 19.40, and he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these people should be silent, the stones themselves would cry out. Friends, it is an age of worship. We must never be afraid to worship God. And the people at the time wanted Jesus to drive the Romans out. But what they did not know is that their king was the true fulfillment throughout the age. Verse 15 tells us why they should be worshipping God. It says, the Lord has taken away your judgments. The Lord has taken away your judgments. We've talked about the judgment of God. The judgment of God is something to be greatly feared. If you yourselves want to pay the price for your sin, then you will face the judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. But praise the Lord. The gift of God is eternal life that was given in the church age, the judgment was taken away. And in no other age has that happened. That we can go to Jesus and we can say, Lord, I have sinned. And we repent of our sin. That we sin no more. And the Lord forgives us. He takes away that judgment that we deserve. An age where the judgment is taken away. You know, the word Jehovah, we understand it as Lord God. But the word Lord that is used in English translations is taken from the Anglo-Saxon version of the word Lord. Lord in Saxon means a provider of bread. But the meaning of Jehovah is more than just somebody who gives us our needs. Jehovah himself describes what his name actually means in Exodus. For those of you that have been very good and have read your verses and are all ready for next Sunday night, Exodus 34, 6 says this, And Jehovah passed by before him and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah God. And this is the description by the Lord himself, what his name means. 
merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and on the sons of sons, to the third and to the fourth generation. We read there, it's, it's funny, it's the back, backwards we would normally put the, that that ends at the beginning and start building up to the good. But what we read there is that God is gracious. His own name means that he's gracious. He's merciful. He's forgiving. And he's slow to anger. All of the things that I'm not. But all of the things, praise God, that he is. Friends, our real enemy is Satan. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world's rulers of darkness of this age and against spiritual wickedness in high places. But Satan's day was ended by the Lord's sacrifice itself. Where we read in John 12, Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. Friends, he is in the midst and he sent his comforter. And that's what we read there in verse 15. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst and you shall see disaster no more. Jesus said this in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I command you. And behold, I am with you all the days until the end of the world. And Matthew 18, 20 says, for where two or three are gathered and together in my name, there I am in the midst. We also see the Trinity in that. In that we see the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit all at work in that verse. And remember, friends, this is a prophetic vision of somebody long time before the Messiah came, 400 years, he saw exactly what we should be like as a church. A church that worships. A church that has had its judgment taken away because of sins forgiven. A church that loves the Lord. That the Lord is the comforter of. That he sends his Holy Spirit to. And that he guides. But it ends there with that word, the curious case is seeing no evil. And the truth is, friends, we see evil every day. We don't have to turn on the news and we see evil every day. With what's going on in Egypt, we see evil all the time. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The thing is, you see, and I remember this being the first message I ever brought to you, so see if you remember it. When we go through hard times, we think, that's not fair. I've seen evil in my life, and I was promised that there shouldn't be. It says there that there should be no evil in our times, but we do see evil. But we're nearer to them and nearer to God when we turn to him in that time. We are bidden to him. James 1-2 says, My brothers, count it all the joy when you fall into different kinds of temptations. 
One theologian puts it like this, for all sorrows are medicine from a father's hand. Truly, our way to eternal joy is to suffer here with Christ, and our door to enter into eternal life is gladly to die with Christ, that we may rise again from death and dwell with him in everlasting life. Friends, we do. We do. It's not that we shan't see disaster anymore, or that we shan't see evil anymore. It's that we shan't see disaster or evil as disaster or evil anymore. Bad things happen. Christians get cancer. People who are good people die. Do we see that always as evil and disaster? Why has this happened to me? I was trying to Skype my mother and father earlier, and my computer, its sound system, just utterly refused to work so that we could see their mouths moving but could not hear a word that was said. So it'd probably be easy if we were talking on the telephone, but instead we've got this where we're writing messages and holding them up to the camera kind of thing. <laughs> as if... And he's sitting there going, Lord, why has this happened to me now? Why can't you break... Friends, we can get a bit silly with it. I know I can. Every boiled teapot is the devil attacking us. It's boiled over, ruined my best frying pan. Oh, Satan, why? <laughs> Friends, we cannot see disaster in these things anymore. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And we are thankful for what we have for a season. But what we have for life, friends, is salvation in Jesus Christ. We don't see evil and disaster anymore. We see the Lord at work in our lives. And then verse 16 says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hand be weak. Friends, we should stand a good fight and not to be faint. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not faint. Galatians 6, 9, but we should not lose heart in well-doing, for in the due season we will reap if we do not faint. Ephesians 3, 13, for this reason I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Revelation 2, 3, and you have borne and of patience and for my name's sake you have labored and have not fainted. And finally in Hebrews 12, 2, Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for considered him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked by him. Friends, we must fear no one. Not because we're bigger and stronger than everybody. Because for a time the church was bigger and stronger. We shouted and our voice was heard. Politicians bowed at our knees. Kings would hear what Christians had to say. Those times are no more. But we are still the head. And not the tail. Why? Because our Lord is Christ Jesus. Friends, do not faint at the trials and the tribulations, the difficulties that we might face. 
We may not be powerful, but we are powerful in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a greater power. What greater promises? We must fear no one except the Lord because he encourages us to move on in him. And then finally, and that word actually does mean that. I promise. In verse 17, hold the key prophecies of the church age. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Praise the Lord. You know, that's typical. Missing that page. But that's fine. The Lord your God is in your midst. There's a verse in Luke where it talks about the lost sheep. And it says, which one of you, when he loses the sheep, doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one? Now, the logical answer to that question is, friends, none of us, none of us would be that stupid that we would leave the 99 behind to go after one. Farmers give up on the one because to lose the 99 and just have one would be financial disaster for your family. Nobody goes after the one. Jesus goes after the one. And it says at the end of that, that promise, I tell you this, that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. Friends, that is a humbling verse. That the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, who flung stars into space, rejoiced over the salvation of every single one of us. If ever you feel unloved, that statement in itself should pull you back on your feet. That the Lord God himself, not just God, all of heaven rejoices over you. People might not return your phone calls, but the Lord rejoiced over your salvation. Who needs them to return the phone calls? The Lord is in the midst of the church. The mighty one will save, and he rejoices over us with gladness. But the last bit is interesting. It says, he will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Because that's an oxymoron in the sense that you've got two things happening there that can't possibly happen, like good grief. How you can have good grief. How can the Lord both be quiet and at the same time be singing? How can the Lord be quiet with his love? And at the same time be singing. He will quiet you with his love. And that is, friends, that our hearts that go a million miles an hour, our brains that never shut up, that think about every single conversation that we've had, that question every single thing, that look for the sentences between the sentences that were never said. That when we turn to the Lord, he will quiet our hearts to know that you cannot change what other people think. Yeah. 
but know that the Lord sings over you with love. What a promise. That is the church age. A prophecy. Not Jesus saying this is what it should be. Not the acts of the apostles saying this is what it is. But Zephaniah saying, I have seen into the future. The Lord has given me a vision. And I have seen a time. A time when these things would be true. That there would be a people with the Lord is in their midst. Where he has turned away the judgment. Where he shows his love so greatly. That he rejoices over them. This is what Jesus says in Isaiah 62 verses 3. This is a great promise. You also will be a crown of glory in the hand of Jehovah. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. That's how we know. We have here in this prophetic vision a church, friends, that does not see fear or does not fear evil. But the work of God in all our lives. That we believe the Lord to be in total control. That we will be a church of worshippers who do not faint, who do not fear. And friends are the apple of God's eyes and his joy. His joy. You know, sometimes when we pray to God, we feel like we're a nuisance to him. I shouldn't be bringing these things. I should really be dealing with them myself. But that's not the case. We're never a nuisance to God. He's there only a prayer away all the time. Zephaniah preached this when the land seemed just so bad. And what he didn't know was that this new king that was growing up would be a man after God's own heart and he would do most wonderful things. But he did know that God was going to punish the unrighteous and he bravely spoke that message out. And he preached to the people that judgment would come. And even Josiah himself couldn't stop the judgment. He could only forestall it. Friends, we as a church will never, ever stop the judgment of God coming. And unfortunately, there are many people in churches who seem to think that if we just do lots of good things and make this world a better place, then God doesn't have to bring his judgment. It's never going to happen, friends. The Lord is coming to judge the earth. All we can do is pray that we take as many with us into salvation for those whom the judgment doesn't stand. Zephaniah was brave and he preached this, but the Lord left him with hope, a hope that there would always be a group, the wheat, who would stand in that time to bring back. Luke 10, 24, and I am finishing with this verse, says this, for I tell you, that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see. And they have not seen them. And they have desired to hear what you hear. And you have not heard them. Friends, we are a privileged people. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because from the beginning of time you envisaged your church, Lord. You saw, Lord, that the Gentiles would be saved, Father, Lord. That you called each one of us, Lord, and you rejoiced over the salvation of every one of us. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful and mighty love and pray your amazing blessings upon us. Lord, bless us. Bless us in fellowship. Bless us this week, Father, Lord, as you've already blessed us. 
that we might 